scripture reading for this evening comes from Matthew chapter 27, verses 45 through 50. Matthew 27, verses 45 through 50. Now from the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour Jesus cried aloud, saying, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders, hearing it, said, This man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine, and put it on a reed, and gave it to him to drink. But the other said, Wait, let's see whether Elijah will come and save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. Hello? Can you hear me now? This is what Ryan Simmons calls old school. So I have no problem going old school in the lesson. I was going to mention, I'll take this off. I was going to mention that this is the last evening. If you would like to provide feedback, I'd really appreciate it in the uh, box in the foyer. Or if you're uh, online, I'd like to hear from you as well. But um, if you'd like to give answers to the four brief questions about books that you're interested in hearing more about and subjects and uh, topics that you'd like to hear more about in the coming weeks and months and years, um, we're going to be doing a lot of sermon planning and also Bible class planning as well. So would love to hear from you if you haven't already submitted a uh, a form. They're out there in the foyer. The questions are also in the bulletin this week in the section entitled From John's Desk. And so I'd be happy to, uh, uh, to get an email from you if you haven't uh, already sent me one. Thank you, by the way, to everyone who's responded. I really appreciate your thoughtful responses. Um, I sent a note to the elders this week, and, and one of the things that I told them was the overwhelming majority of responses that I've gotten from folks are very thoughtful and the overwhelming majority have to do with how can I live to be a more faithful Christian in today's times, in the things that are going on around us? In, in lots of different ways, people have asked that question. I, I want to serve God. I want to please God. But it sometimes seems so difficult to know how to do that when things are so unusual and so strange and so many different concerning topics are happening around us. And so I appreciate your thoughtfulness and your prayerfulness and all of that. We'll be doing what we can to take God's word and, and address some of those concerns. But thank you so much for your responses. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 22 and 23, Peter remembered Jesus at the cross. And as he remembered Jesus and what his suffering and death were like, Peter said that he committed no sin, neither was there any deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he reviled not again. The Bible says when he suffered, he did not threaten, but he committed himself to him who judges righteously. The Bible is its own best commentary. The Bible gives commentary on other passages, and it's amazing to think about what Peter's saying in 1 Peter 2, 22 and 23. He's saying that out of everything Jesus said, 
from the time that he went to trial before Pilate, even before that, when he went to trial before the Jewish Sanhedrin, until the moment that he gave up his spirit, Jesus never sinned in what he said. This morning we began a sermon, a study, of what Jesus said from the cross. And seven times he spoke. And out of all those seven times, there's not one single word of wrath or anger or reviling. As a matter of fact, Jesus prayed for his enemies. He prayed, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Luke 23, verse 34. Jesus gave a promise to a dying thief. Surely, uh, truly I say to you, today you shall be with me in paradise. Luke 23, verse 43. And Jesus looked down from the cross and he saw his mother and the sorrow as her heart was breaking, watching her son dying for the sins of mankind. And he said, woman, behold your son, looking at John. And he looked at John, his disciple, and said, behold your mother. Jesus thought about others. He cared for others. But as he suffered and died, the most unjust, the most inequitable, the most heinous death that's ever been died. Jesus did not have one word of reviling or anger. That's amazing to contemplate. What a Savior we serve and what an example he sets. We said this morning that when someone dies, the Bible teaches that our character comes out. It's revealed. When someone suffers, our character is revealed. The things that we're all about, the things that we really believe deep down inside, the things that we don't think anybody else sees or anybody else knows about us. Those things come out when we hurt, when we suffer. If that's true, then it's amazing what was inside Jesus. He is the very epitome of love, the very epitome of holiness, the very epitome of what it means to serve God faithfully. Open your Bibles this evening as we continue our study to Matthew chapter 27, if you haven't already done so. Statement number four this evening. After Jesus promised to forgive, or prayed about forgiveness, after he promised that the thief would be with him in paradise the very same day that they both expired. After Jesus said, woman, behold your son, and to John, behold your mother. In Matthew chapter 27, beginning in verse 45, Jesus uttered a word of anguish. Again, let's read together, beginning in verse 45 of this chapter. The Bible says it was beginning at the sixth hour, that's noon, 12 noon. From the sixth hour until the ninth hour, 3 p.m., there was darkness over all the land. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Some of those who stood there when they heard that, said, this man's calling for Elijah. And immediately one of them ran and took a sponge and filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and offered it to him to drink. And the rest said, let him alone. Let us see if Elijah will come to save him. There are some mysterious things about this particular sentence, this particular prayer. Jesus prayed three times from the cross. Two times he prayed, Father. Father, forgive them, Luke 23, verse 34. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit, Luke 23, verse 46. But on this particular occasion, he calls God, my God. 
My God, my God. And as a matter of fact, this is the only time anywhere in Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John that Jesus prays and calls God something other than Father. Three mysteries to contemplate as you think about what's going on in this particular passage. The first mystery is the darkness. Why was it dark at noon? Why was it dark for three hours? Jesus, Mark tells us, was nailed to the cross at 9 a.m. And for the first three hours, it was sunlight. And then at 12 noon, there was darkness over the whole land until the third hour, until 3 p.m. Why? Someone has said it's almost as if all of creation is sympathizing with what's taking place at the cross. It's as if the darkness is hiding the shame and the sorrow and the horror of what's happening to Jesus. We need to think more about the ugliness and the awfulness of the cross. And someone has well written this, out of all of God's creation that we see in this world, everything does exactly what it was designed to do except for mankind. The sun, the moon, the stars, the trees, the plants, the flowers, everything that God created, the animals, they do exactly what God designed them to do. But mankind is the only creature in this world that is willfully rebellious to God. And perhaps the darkness, a miracle, was given by God to remind us of the darkness of our hearts and the reason why Jesus had to suffer for us. It's a mystery. And I wonder if, as the people stood there by the cross, I wonder if it even fazed them that this was happening. I mean, they continue to mock, they continue to talk about what's happening to Jesus, and it's almost like this is not even something that they're considering. Why is it dark? What's going on? The mystery of the darkness. But there's a second mystery as you look at this particular passage in Matthew 27, verse 46. The thing that he said, the statement that he made. Are you aware that he's actually quoting from the Old Testament? This is from Psalm 22, verse 1. In Psalm 22, verse 1, the 22nd Psalm is actually a lot about the cross. It's a prophecy of what was going to happen at the cross. And there are so many statements from Psalm 22 that are applicable, that are fulfilled in the cross. And so as Jesus makes this statement, he's actually quoting Scripture. That's fascinating. Twice from the cross, Jesus quoted Scripture. This particular statement, and again Luke 23, verse 46, he quotes from the book of Psalms. Father, into your hand I commit my spirit. And so Jesus makes this statement, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's been said that a Bible scholar of many years past sat down in his room for two solid days thinking about that statement. And at the end of two days doing nothing but contemplating that statement, the idea that the father would turn his back on the son, he said simply, God forsaken of God, who could understand it? There's not a mind in this room tonight, brothers and sisters and friends, that can contemplate and comprehend what specifically everything that's entailed in that statement means. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But I do know this. I do know that the Bible says that Jesus was made to be a sin offering for us 
2 Corinthians 5, verse 21. And a holy God can have nothing to do with sin. Our sins separate us from him. Isaiah 59, verses 1 and 2. Habakkuk 1, verse 13 tells us that God is of two pure eyes to behold holiness, to behold sin because of his holiness. And if all that is true, then when Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus was enduring the greatest anguish and suffering of anyone who has ever lived. The point has been made in years past. You and I have never experienced what it's like to be completely without God. No recourse, no avenue, no way to be close to him. We don't know what that's like. Jesus was forsaken so that we might never have to be forsaken. He suffered so that we might be healed. He was wounded for our transgressions, Isaiah 53 and verse 6. But it's a mystery if you try to wrap your mind around what Jesus said. Why have you forsaken me? And try to understand everything that's entailed. There's a third mystery here as you read Matthew 27, verses 45 and following. The third mystery is the people that were present. And how they reacted to this particular statement. You know, sometimes the Bible will bring the original language into English here. And so we have the actual literal statement that Jesus made because he was speaking a language called Aramaic. And in the Aramaic language, the way that you would quote Psalm 22, verse 1, it says, Eli, Eli. That's Aramaic for my God, my God. And what is so profound and amazing about that is Jesus is not just saying this to God. He's saying it publicly from the cross. And the people that were there that were mocking him heard what he said. And they understood it because they spoke the same language that Jesus did. They knew that he was quoting the Old Testament. They knew what Psalm 22 verse 1 taught. They had memorized huge portions of the Old Testament. And so when he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? They knew where he got those words. But instead of stopping to think about the fact that he was quoting scripture, and instead of thinking about the rest of what's written in Psalm 22 and how it talks about how he's being surrounded by dogs and how every bone is out of joint and how his tongue cleaves to the roof of his mouth, all those things written in Psalm 22, instead of that, here's what they say. Listen, he's calling for Elijah because he said, Eli, Eli. That's why it's written that way in the Bible. That's funny, he's calling for Elijah. The Jews knew their Old Testament, and the Bible teaches in Malachi that Elijah was going to come before the Messiah. He was going to be a forerunner of the Messiah. God says, in fact, it's the last prophecy of the Old Testament in Malachi chapter 4, that Elijah was going to return, and then the days of the Messiah were going to come. And what the enemies are basically doing is this. They're saying, He's calling for Elijah. Elijah is going to come to save him. That's funny. Leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah is going to come and show up. And then he can be the Messiah. The hardness of men's hearts. You know, when the Bible doesn't fit what we think needs to be happening, we'll twist and distort. We will change the Bible to mean what we think it needs to mean. And on this particular occasion, these hard-hearted people, some of the wisest and most knowledgeable in Israel, knew the scriptures backwards and forwards, but they missed the point of what was taking place. 
because the Savior of all the world was dying right in front of their eyes and all they could do was make fun. A word of anguish. Your Savior suffered and was mocked and was ridiculed mercilessly so that you might never have to know what it's like to be forsaken by God. Turn in your Bibles to John chapter 19. Secondly, as we think about the sayings, the statements of Jesus from the cross, he really did save his greatest sermon for the cross. In John chapter 19, look at verse 28, statement number 5. John chapter 19 and verse 28. And listen to how John writes it. All of these words are couched in a little bit of context for us. After this, Jesus knowing that all things were now accomplished so that the scripture might be fulfilled said, and it's just four letters in the Greek language, I thirst. I thirst. And you think, out of all the things that Jesus said from the cross, that seems really strange that he said, I'm thirsty. Oh, but there's a lot to that statement. Consider this. When Jesus said, I thirst... It is a picture of his humanity. Jesus Christ is the son of God. He is fully divine. He has always had all the attributes that make God God. In him dwells all the fullness of divinity of the Godhead bodily. Colossians chapter 2 verses 9 and 10. So when you think about Jesus, he is God. He's fully God. He doesn't like anything that God has. At the same time, the Bible teaches very clearly that Jesus is human. And everything that makes you human, Jesus possesses that as well. So when Jesus was conceived in the womb of Mary, he was born. He grew up just like you and I grow up. He got tired. He got hungry. He got thirsty. He got discouraged at times. Jesus knew what it was like to live and to be tempted and to suffer in this world. And yet he never sinned. But he was tempted in all points like as we are, yet without sin. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15. And so the Bible teaches that Jesus, because he fully participates in our humanity and he fully participates in the deity of God and knows everything there is to know and is everything that God is, because those things are true about Jesus, he can be a perfect high priest for you and me. The fact that he got thirsty because the cross was a dehydrating type of experience. The fact that he got thirsty reminds us of his humanity. If Jesus had not become human, he could never be the mediator that's acceptable between man and God. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. But not only does it remind us of his humanity, it reminds us of his obedience. Look at what John says. So that the scripture might be fulfilled. You see that in verse 28, John 19, 28? So that the scripture might be fulfilled, he said, I thirst. You go back to Psalm 69 and verse 21, and there's reference to them giving gall, giving myrrh, a, 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 a sour a drink to, uh, to, the, to Jesus when he was on the cross in Psalm 69 verse 21. The idea is that he's fulfilling prophecy, that everything Jesus did was in order to fulfill the prophecies about himself was in order to please his heavenly father. You know, on one occasion, 
In John chapter 8, verse 29, Jesus said, I always do those things that please him. In John 4, verse 34, my meat, what I have to eat is to do the will of him who sent me. Jesus came to do God's will. Jesus came to please his heavenly father. And so we see his faithful obedience in every aspect of his life. The way he talked, the way he lived, his attitudes, complete obedience to our heavenly father. I thirst. When you read that phrase, I thirst, it also reminds us of his love for us. When Jesus talked to the Samaritan woman at the well in John chapter 4, he was trying to raise her curiosity a bit, and he said, if you knew who it was that, would talk to, that was talking to you, you would ask of him, and he would give you a drink. I can give you living water, and if you drink the living water that I give you, Jesus says, you will never thirst. That's fascinating to contemplate. So Jesus promised a woman that he was going to give her water that she could drink and she'd never thirst. And yet at the cross, he says, I thirst. In Revelation chapter 7, verse 16, the Bible foreshadows and talks about our heavenly reward. And one of the things it says is that those who live and abide in that place will never hunger and will never thirst. Jesus loves us. And he loves us so much that he thirsted so that we might never have to thirst. He said in another place, blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. Remember Matthew chapter five and verse five. We need to think about what we're really thirsty for. Do you have a longing for a relationship with God? Are you thirsty for that? Jesus thirsted so that we could come to God and find cleansing and be satisfied and have our thirst sated. As you continue looking at John chapter 19, notice this, number six. What did he say from the cross? In John chapter 19 and verse 30, a word of victory. So when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. You know, some people have written about this and they've said, well, he was finally defeated. And so this is, this is the statement of a man who is, he's had all he can stand and he's just giving up defeat. I don't believe for a second that's what Jesus was doing. When he said it is finished, this is the cry of victory. He has taken the very worst blows that Satan can inflict upon him. He has endured the very worst that the world could impose upon any individual. And Jesus has faithfully and dutifully obeyed because he loves the lost so much. And so when he says it is finished, it's a statement of victory, not of defeat. The word in Greek is tetelestai. Ten letters. And the word is really interesting because it was very common in the ancient world to say to Telestai, it is finished. For example, when a servant serving his master would complete a task that had been assigned or was expected, did you finish your chores today, servant? 
And the servant would say to his master, Tetelestai, it is finished. Even Jesus prayed in John 17, verse 4, Father, I have finished the work which you have given me to do. But not only that, it was also used by the priests in the temple. You know, when you had to come to the temple to offer sacrifices to God, you'd bring your lamb or you'd bring your bull and you would ritually wash and you'd go into the, into the place where the offerings were made and you'd deliver that animal to the priest. And the priest, you'd have to wait while they, while they did all the things that were required in the rituals for offering that animal as a sacrifice. And after everything had been done, after all the portions and parts of the animal had been taken care of, the priest would say to Telestai, it is finished. Your offering has been made. Another way that this word was used was when an artist would be painting a portrait. And when the artist decided that he was finished with the portrait, he, was, he decided that he had said everything that needed to be or written, or drawn everything that needed to be drawn, painted everything that needed to be painted, the artist would say to Telestai, it is finished. In John 20, verses 30 and 31, John talks about the gospel that he wrote. It's inspired. It's from God. But he says, there's so many more things I could have said about Jesus. So many more miracles that he did. So many more things that he taught. But this is written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. And that believing you may have life through his name. An artist finishing a portrait to tell us die. It's a word that's used to describe a merchant paying a debt in full. If you owed somebody money, you might carry that debt for a while, but when you finally got enough money to pay it back, when you brought that money to the person that you owed the money to, you'd say to Telestai, paid in full, Acts 20, verse 28. Jesus purchased the church with his blood. It's paid in full. And so when Jesus says, it is finished, what was finished? What's paid in full? What's completed? What's ta what task is finished? Consider this. The old law was being nailed to the cross, and all the promises and all the hopeful prophecies about who the Messiah was going to be and what he was going to accomplish, they were finished at the cross. The Old Testament and its prophecies. Not only that, the wrath of Satan, his grip on those who are righteous, it was broken. Jesus defeated the power of the devil by what he accomplished at the cross. It was finished. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 17 and 18. What was finished at the cross? The work that Jesus came to do. He came to save people from their sins. And it was finished, paid in full, when he expired on the cross. A word of victory. We ought to stop and give thanks every day of our lives for the victory that we have in Jesus Christ. It wasn't incomplete. It wasn't given in stages. It was finally and ultimately won at the cross. One more passage to consider this evening. Turn to Luke 23 and verse 46. What Jesus said from the cross, Luke 23 verse 46, a word of confidence. When Jesus had cried out with a loud voice, he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said that, he breathed his last. This was another quotation from the Old Testament. Psalm 31 and verse 5 specifically. 
Psalm 31, verse 5. Jesus died. And when you think about this statement, consider how he died. Jesus died actually. He died actually. His soul and his body were separated. That's what death is. The separation of body and spirit, James 2, verse 26. Later in John 19, verse 33, the passage we were just referring to, the Bible says that the soldiers came and they broke the legs of the thieves because they wanted to hasten their deaths. But when they came to Jesus, they found that he was already dead. And Mark chapter 15, verse 44 tells us that Pilate was actually really surprised that Jesus had already died. So quickly? Is is that really what happened? Yes, he died. Actually died. But not only that, Jesus died confidently. As Jesus was dying, he quoted scripture. I would like to think that when all of us face the moment, the time in which we are going to leave this world, that the words and the promises of God will be on our minds and on our hearts and on our lips as well. The Savior who lived by the word died by the word. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Matthew 4, verse 4. Jesus died confidently. When Jesus died, this should not escape our notice. He died willingly. John 10, verses 17 and 18. He says, no one takes my life from me. This is not something that's being done against my will. I, the good shepherd, lay down my life for the sheep. And if I lay down my life, I will take it up again. He was completely in control. And so when he says, Father, into your hands, I commit my spirit. Have you ever thought about the fact Jesus is the only individual that chose to be born? Nobody else did. But he's also the only individual that died and chose the moment of his death. He died willingly. Galatians 2 verse 20, Paul said, I'm crucified with Christ. The one who gave himself for me, gave himself for me. Jesus died willingly for you and me so that we might never know what it's like to be eternally lost. When Jesus died, he died victoriously. Back in Matthew, we read about the veil of the temple being torn from top to bottom. We read about earthquakes. We read about the dead rising out of their graves. There was victory in the death of Jesus. And the people that had their spiritual senses attuned to what Jesus was all about, they should have understood immediately what all this meant. There's victory in Jesus Christ. You know, Christianity doesn't just get us ready to live. It doesn't just show us the abundant life, John 10, verse 10. Christianity gets us ready to die. It gets us ready to face that moment because that moment is coming for every one of us. And Jesus Christ died confidently because he knew who his father was. He knew where he was going. And he knew the promises of God are as bright and as sure as the day that they were made. Into your hands, I commit my spirit. When we die, I hope we're able to die that way as well. But think about this. We're not ready to die. We're not ready to leave this life until our lives have been made right because of the blood that was shed on that occasion for you and me.
Have you come to Christ? Have you put him on? Have you been washed in the blood of the Lamb? Maybe you're ready to make that decision tonight through belief, through confession of Jesus Christ as the Son of God, through repentance of your sin, and through baptism. You come into a relationship with God because of everything that Jesus endured for you at the cross. We need to remember the words of our Savior. We need to remember who He is. And we need to put our trust completely, fully, and without reserve in Him. If we can help you, won't you come all together we stand and while we sing?